Welcome to Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG. Brought to you by Baker. In every episode, we'll investigate how purpose, vision, and values can guide your company's sustainability actions, behaviors, and mindsets. And we'll discuss their impact with the help of ESG-focused guests from around the globe. I'm your host, Rocket. And I'm your host, Gary. Let's get started. Today, we're speaking with Olga Puntas. Olga is an ESG and sustainability professional with over 20 years of global experience in project management, environmental and social risk management, that's ENS, ENS due diligence, ENS assessment, CSR activities and reporting, stakeholder engagement, including investors and shareholders, and policy development. Olga just started a new job at J.P. Morgan Chase. She's the executive director of the Global Environmental, Social, and Climate Risk Team. Prior to that, she was a senior vice president of environmental and social risk at Wells Fargo for five years. And prior to that, Ogle spent more than 11 years at the World Bank and the International Finance Corporation in several positions, starting in the investment analysis of financial markets, operations officer of sustainability, and environmental and social development specialist. Ogle holds a master's in environmental sustainability from Columbia University. She's worked in many industries, renewables, energy, oil and gas, mining, power, utilities, infrastructure, apparel, and global manufacturing, health and education. Her broad experience includes sustainable energy finance, a cleaner production project management in cross-border settings. As a GRI certified specialist, prepared a number of reports on the GRI methodology. Olga, welcome to Sustainable. Thank you, Gary. Yeah. Now, you just started a new position at J.P. Morgan as the yeah, executive director you. of Global Environmental and Social Risk Climate Risk Team. Yes. Exciting. Exciting. Tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, I'm exhaling because it's week three and big banks, big environmental, social, climate risk focus these days. And I must admit that I coming from one big bank, which is Wells Fargo, to another big bank, I didn't expect how similar banks would be approaching the topic of ENS and climate risk in particular. And similar, I say, because it's not necessarily regulated just yet, because banks like to follow regulations and they do right. everything the same if it's regulated. But since this topic is not yet regulated, will be slowly but surely in the U.S. with SEC. And of course, Europe is already setting some things up. But still, to see that something unregulated, lots of volunteer reporting, and yet two big banks of the United States doing very similar work. And that is to say on structuring the teams, having a risk ID, which is what banks do, approach already, although it's not regulated and required yet, understanding the climate risk needs to be both physical and transitional, and then disclosing what the banks are doing. So all of that has been very similar to my kind of surprise. And overall, I think people in the space are very friendly and very welcoming and very warm 
which has been my three weeks experience. Also kind of unusual, one would say for big banks where people are busy and closing deals, but I was actually pleasantly surprised that everyone is busy, but friendly and welcoming for newcomers at the same time. So the similarity, is it intentional? That's a good question. I think it's interesting how, in this case, Wall Street is moving by, I guess, people gathering together. Climate Week has just taken place last week in New York, as you know, one of the largest climate events in the world, actually, was streamlined. It was in person. I don't even know how many people attended. But people talk to each other, and that might be where it's coming from, that Climate Week had at one bank talk to another climate is had and then they just do things similarly. I worked on environment issues management for six years at Wells Fargo and now joined GP. I clearly knew folks environmental issues management, other banks, and we kind of talk and that's why we do things similarly. That is not to say there's no framework. There are frameworks for how you do, you know, ENS risk for project finance, which is kind of standardized. But other things, the fact that they're not, and yet they look similar, it was surprising to me. But I do think it's because people are trying to do the right thing and they talk to each other. They hire some similar consulting firms, which helps them to do what they do. And it becomes... So I think what I'm trying also to say is that I came from one big bank to another, expecting it would be completely disastrous new learning curve. But it's a lot of similarities. So I just pick up where I kind of left off. Yeah. And there's cross-pollination for exactly what happened to you. You move from one big bank to another big bank. And so there's a lot of shared... Correct. Uh, Brain power. There. Yeah, exactly. You said it. I was speaking with... We have another VP who just joined in London. She comes from Standard Charters Environmental Associates Management Team. And we just... First of all, we all know each other. That's an interesting point, Gary. Secondly, we do all move around. So if you look at kind of tendency on LinkedIn, for example, and in my world, we call it ESG more broadly, but it's really kind of ENS risk world. You see every week, somebody you know saying, I just changed the job from one bank to another, from one financial to another. And then I receive emails from the group I was on to say, I went from, you know, standard charters to city and credit Suisse to Wells Fargo. So it's really, you're right. It's very much of a liquid space of the subject matter expert. Yeah. Well, and yesterday you you were also saying about how they have similar consultants and that could also add to it. And yesterday Bain announced they were putting all of their entire staff through ESG training. I know that Deloitte did it previously. So that's very interesting, I think, that they are making that effort and investment this is not going away if anyone thinks that it's going away. Yeah, it's interesting you said on the training side because I saw it Wells when I was there and now I see GP that kind of standardized training. And, you know, again, banks are all about the regulator requires us to do this training and this training and we know equity and diversity inclusion training became mandatory. But nobody requires bankers to know what ESG or ENS risk is. And yet, again, talking for two banks I kind of know now, they are all about how do we standardize in our onboarding the ESG and then ENS risk-specific training for our newcoming and annual review and training bankers. So it's truly happening without 
anyone telling the banks that you need to do it. I was wondering about double uh, from the banking side. A lot of people in the United States tend to go to SASB because the materiality assessment has basically been done for them. And it's only really looking at what's material value-wise for companies that could affect their future earnings that sort of perspective, whereas GRI, I think, you know, is much more, it's much more broad in sustainability interests of reporters. And I was wondering if, what do the banks, how do they evaluate? Do they like it when companies are more double materiality based or is, are they just looking at the value? I think it's a little bit of both. It's a good question. I think it's a little bit of both. So SASB did start the baseline, right? So let's see what material and what bank, if you will, need to focus on. So if all employees say sustainability of our buildings is important, we also need to focus on that, whether it's well, I guess it's material if your employees say, we want to see that's happening. And then with the same with shareholders who say, I want you to focus on human rights and therefore banks started focusing on human rights a lot. But I think it's both, right? So it's materiality, which would take every one to three years banks are doing. And SASB is, is a good, I think, benchmarking. But I know if you hire an external consultant, they would go way beyond SASB. They would just go interview your leadership, the shareholders, your investors, and they just say, we think this is a full picture on sustainability materiality. But banks on the value creation, they definitely want to see what's coming and which boat they don't want to miss. And it's a little bit of peer pressure. I think what Gary was saying with cross-pollination, if I come from Wells and tell GP that that's what we've done in Wells, my boss would say, I want to do that and more, right? Because it's a little bit of a competitive environment. Because if other banks are doing it or other financial institutions in Europe are doing it, that's a trend and banks don't want to miss the trend. And look at sustainability link loans, for example. I don't think there's any bank now in 2022 which doesn't do sustainability link loans. Whereas five years ago, it was something very new. Nobody understood what to do apart from a couple European banks. And now everyone was watching for five years and every bank does it because it's not just important to clients, it's value creation for banks. It's also, I would say, good PR component without being greenwashed because you have to structure and show that that's what you do. But I think to be short, it's a little bit of both. You have to address materiality because you're a bank, but you also have to create value and not to miss the trend. Because if you do, I always say it's kind of a little circular. Your employees would not want to work for you. The investors would not want to invest in you. Your regulators would just say, you're starting it just now. And I think it was in the air for five years. So it's a little bit of a, you also want to be trendy. I think banks now try to be green and sustainable without, of course, greenwashing. But that's how you stay up in the game, I think. so. Yeah. And relevant. Yeah. And yeah. relevant, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So I want to touch upon, I mean, you've got so much experience. While you were the senior vice president of environmental and social risk management at Wells Fargo, you managed a lot of transactions, North America, also projects in Europe, Russia, 
Central Asia, Latin America, Northern and Southern Africa, and Asia. So I'm curious. I mean, there's about business ethics and business ethics sort of around the world. What did you, I mean, what did you see that was good out there and what needs to be changed or improved? Yeah, Gary, good question. Thank you. It's a little bit of, I think, combination of the regions and projects and transactions you mentioned between my IFC, International Finance Corporation, which is all about emerging markets, and Wells Fargo, which is all about emerged, or as we call it, designated countries. We use OECD language, which is all United States, Canada, UK, and the developed world. So it's a very interesting question in terms of what's different on ethics and I would say environmental, social regulations or perception side. So when I came from the emerging market projects at IFC, I expected the North America slash UK and Europe ENS project regulatory and, and standards requirements would be perfect. And why? Because when you work in emerging markets, you always feel that you bring best practices from designated countries to say, this is occupational safety, which are best standards. This is how to approach universal global human rights approach. This is how social issues would be or pay or whatnot. And then, of course, once you get into the details working in designated countries, you realize that it's not perfect and it's not necessarily best examples to give sometimes to emerging markets. And I'll give you an example. To my surprise, and then history of environmental social regulations in the U.S. kind of proved that, is that social issues, and we all live now to know that, have been ignored and rather not regulated, rather not put in the kind of standards in the U.S., might have been intentional in the 70s when Clear Air and Clear Water Act, etc., were developed. Nobody cared about indigenous peoples and Native Americans at that time. Nobody really cared about women. Nobody cared about equal pay and international labor organization if we go into more of an international standard. So that's why I think the biggest difference in terms of social issues between emerging markets and developed economies is definitely on human rights applicability. It's on indigenous people's impact management. It's about, if you will, I will be very transparent about all related to labor. So equal pay is still a big problem in the United States, whereas it's not a problem in Eastern Europe, where I'm coming from. So nobody would ever expect in countries like Ukraine or Belarus that a female will be paid 75 cents on a dollar compared to a male coworker, which is still a problem in this country. So, and that's how I came to realize managing the ENS team in one of the largest banks in the world that we should pay more attention to social aspects and social risk and impact of projects, bank finances in the countries such as US, Canada, UK, and Europe. Whereas in emerging markets, it might be more environmental component one would need to pay attention to versus social, although it depends on jurisdiction. Hmm. So here's a kind of a new topic. There's a gap 
And you were just talking about this, so I'm going to build off. There's a gap between ambition and reality, specifically for companies that are setting very ambitious goals in, in relation to sustainability and net zero and zero waste, right? And But many are struggling to deliver on these. And so this is really due to a lot of factors. There's internal factors, a lot of factors. What do you see in this area? Do you, what do you, what's going on? Gary, you're asking all these easy questions to answer. <laughs> Existential global questions. Yeah, I think happening in my view, and I was at Wells when the net zero commitment was set. And that's interesting to say that I think most banks would come from the same background is that the commitment was set Senior leadership really wanted that commitment to be glossy and beautiful and aligned with Paris and whatever the fancy term was at the time of setting it up, which is usually last year or the year before. Everyone wanted to join the Zero Banking Alliance because that's what banks are supposed to do. To my earlier point of trans and not missing the train. So you do not want to be standing out as not joining and not setting the goals. Right. But then what happens is the goal is set, but nobody created a plan how to get there. So it's becoming, let's set a goal and then we'll figure it out how we get there. So I think that's the number one issue. I don't know if it's good or bad, but it's never been done before. Because usually you say, here's my goal to reduce my, I'm making it up, energy consumption of my buildings by 30%. And it's usually manageable. You know, it's energy efficiency issues. You certify your buildings. And then you get to the goal. When you set the goal of 2050, of net zero, number one, nobody who set the goal is most likely going to be around to be accountable to defend the goal. Oh, boy. Number two is the goal, which is so vast and so complex. And I'm sure you've heard about scope three emissions, which is the financed emissions. And nobody knows how to do this because it's so complex. But it's a little bit of that chicken and egg problem. So the goal was set. It's so ambitious, but it's so far away that it's easy to get a glory to set it up today, but really not to be around to understand whether it was done or not. So I think that's problem number one. Problem number two is sometimes banks want to be in the trend. And it's not just banks. I mean, states join, we are still in Paris as well without understanding how they're going to do that. So I think it's that intention is right, but how to do that is impossible to know because it's such a far away and such a far-stretching ambition. But on the positive side, I think without wanting to be ambitious, not setting any goal, not wanting to be in a pack of your peers would be making a progress. So I think to be daring and to be saying, let's set a goal, close our eyes, and then see how we get there later. Maybe that's how big things happen. And maybe that's why we have Apple and Google and because somebody had this daring idea in mind. So, and I guess the answer is it's 2022 end of it. All the goals were set, as I said, within last two years. Whether it's going to be achievable or not, we're all going to see in a couple of years on the planning, on the disclosures, because banks will have to do it by 2030. A lot of interim goal is 2030. And then we could talk then and see how practical 2030 
interim goals were achieved or not, and whether we're on the track to 2050. I hope to be around, but I know my CEO of either bank would not, most likely, because they would want to be retired and (laughs) not be accountable for net zero commitments at that time. I guess it really points to how important it is for the companies to be showing progress in their ESG reporting. And if there's nothing but sort of fluff in the sense of we're going to do this, but we haven't started or here's the plan and here are the milestones. And this year we either made the milestone or didn't make it and telling reasons why for both becomes critical because otherwise you can't really take it seriously. I agree. I agree. And I've heard, and then I don't know, you can quote me or not, but I've heard some financial institutions might be putting back and reversing their commitments or memberships just because of the unattainable, unreportable, and not meeting milestones goals. Because as you know, and it's now not one bank, not two, and Deutsche Bank and Goldman were the two most known ones, and then BNY Mellon were the other one where the greenwashing and the accusations and really regulatory fines and litigation in certain cases were following some unattainable statements, goals. And as you know, I mean, Goldman basically changed the name of the fund without changing anything in fund structure. And I mean, so public information where to your point, it's not changing the title or changing the line in your report, which makes it happen. It needs to be very, very robust, deeper work and deep analysis and changing your finances or changing your fund structure, which actually makes it ESG or, yeah, exactly, or making it net zero. So yeah, it might be losses in those and reversals and then exits with the joint members to show, yep, we now agree we're not going to be able to do that because we finance oil and gas and oil and gas is not going to make our portfolio to look net zero. Well, what happens also if they say no more, you can't buy carbon replacement? (laughs) I mean, that would set a lot of people back on their goal. And so with it still sort of being the Wild West, but at least if they would... Good point. Yeah, at least if they would come out and be honest or realistic, then you would have to, you'd give them credit that they thought it through. And if they then presented a plan and showed, again, milestones where you could hold them accountable, then we could start to see whether it was greenwashing or whether it was truly the intent. I'm Exactly. Yep. Yeah. I'm curious when you spoke about Goldman, One of the things we help people with is authentically define and own and live their purpose, their mission, their values, and associated behaviors around that. And uh, we do a lot of work in really getting into the heart and soul of a company. But what we were just talking about speaks about business ethics and business integrity. And there's been a lot of lessons learned from (laughs) decades now of things that are happening. But greenwashing sort of falls into this category. What we were just talking about 
and you work with a lot of banks. How are these kept top of mind? Are they? Uh, how are these things lived? Very good question. I think, again, completely personal observations is that when one bank gets hit, the bank pays attention. So it's a little bit of that peer observation yeah. situation. And I will tell you, it's similar on good side and a bad side. So if we know, you know, Wells Fargo had one of the largest banking fines in the history of banking after the account scandal of 2016, 2017. And I guarantee all the banks started paying attention to how they're opening their accounts yeah. and how those practices are being done. Speaking of ethics, whether it's centralized, who is paying attention, then control started being put in place much more at all banks, not just at Wells Fargo, where the regulator said, you have to fix your control and risk environment. So I think it's one by observing how good or bad other peers are. It's good from my other bank set the commitments, I'll set the commitments, but it's also my other bank that slapped with the highest fine on the planet. Therefore, let me check on my controls on the accounts, for example. So very similar, I think, on greenwashing. So when the news about Goldman or BNY Mellon or other banks, or Deutsche Bank, I think was the first one when the asset management executive quit and then said Deutsche is doing is saying but not doing. Every bank, and I'm inside one now where it's the culture of now controls over controls, verification of each statement. If you put a standard on something, you have to triple verify that it's actually uh, the true statement. It's actually being done. If it is a name of a functional head being added to, say, escalation forum, that it's truly that person on that escalation forum. So I think it brings a lot of anxiety, but yeah. it's also a lot of expectations that, oh, if regulators are not asking us to prove it today, they will definitely prove tomorrow. Yeah. And I don't know if you've seen, I've learned this morning, the Federal Reserve of the US will be coming to banks now on the climate. CCAR, which is very much of the quarterly assessment of the capital requirements, they are planning to do the same on the climate steer analysis and risk verification. Mm. I don't know if it's now understood how it's going to be done and whether CCAR on the credit side model will be used for climate, but you see it's almost banks are ready. They've been thinking about it now for two years. And when the central bank comes in and says, I want you to do this, but now for climate, nobody is just rolling their eyes and say, I don't know how to do that. Although I talk about climate in my TCFD and other reports for two years. So it's a lot of, I think, finally doing, finally budgeting, finally having expertise. And when I mentioned we have a climate scientist, I mean, she's a physicist, climate scientists by training, by PhD, etc. And five years ago, I don't think banks had such a scientist on their staff, right. but now they do. Yeah. Well, that really, so much has changed in the past 10 years, five years, two, three years have changed. So this is a forward-looking question. What do you see in the next five, 10 years? What's going to happen? I mean, I said uh, this is a huge industry, if you will, sustainability. I think ESG will evolve. But what are your thoughts around that in the next five, 10 years? 
I think, good question. I wish I had a crystal ball, but given the, and of course the former performance is not the predictor of the future performance, but I think politics aside, and I'm on a positivity type of human in general, and I think ESG professional being positive overall, I think what we discussed in terms of how the world on the climate impacts and climate disasters is changing is also showing that people who were maybe climate deniers or ESG, oh, it's all, you know, BS and not necessarily true. They're changing their views. I think that's number one. Number two, I think whether new government comes or government with different agenda would want to rewrite the playbook, I think we still have enough people, enough power, enough seniority, enough financing going into ESG to make it as a a continuous journey. And that's where I would say how I see banking and ESG five, 10 years from now. And maybe it's a little bit my hope versus how I really truly believe it's going to be. But I do think bankers would be ESG savvy, meaning bankers would not want to bank something which has disastrous impacts to Native Americans or absolutely devastating impacts to cultural heritage or affluents are floating into rivers and open waters without being considered in the due diligence. So I think, number one, bankers will be much more ESG due diligence and ESG incorporating in their initial analysis, one. Two, I hope with the tendency, as I gave a sustainable dealing loans example, that hopefully the majority of products on the banking side will be ESG products, which means they would be not just, I'll give you the money, you pay me that money back with an interest, and I'll just give you the money if your credit is good and how much return I can make, but it's rather how much of a difference my product going to you can also generate. So what's the ESG impact versus just return on investment? And hopefully that return on investment will be also incorporating the ESG impact, meaning the more ESG friendly it is, the more return I as a banker can receive as well. So that's two, that all ESG, I mean, all the products, banking products will be ESG products five to 10 years from now. And I think number three, sustainability would be kind of embedded in everything banks do, whether it's buildings they build and real estate is not going to go away, whether we work from home or not, how people act in those buildings, what water they drink, what cups they use, what toilets they're flushing, if you will, so that operational sustainability. Then financial institutions have a huge supply chain, whether it's tables to be delivered or, you know, buildings to be built in Philippines. So I think supply chain will probably become much more ESG friendly, meaning no human trafficking or forced labor ever in the construction workers or suppliers. So that's kind of three. And then four, I think the four would be a little bit more of a workforce which comes in would also demand more. And they would say, I want commitments to be even more ambitious and I want my bank to do even more ESG products and everything launching new or buildings new or suppliers new will be kind of ESG savvy. But that's my global vision. I know it might be not attainable, 
But with, again, what we've seen in the last, I would say, five years and the attention and the budgeting and the resourcing to those topics do show that the trend is towards what I described versus going back. I like that. That's fantastic. We're up against our time limit. So great to talk to you. Yeah, what a great thing thing to end on. Yeah, (laughs) thank you so much for making the time, Olga. Yeah, good luck to you with the new job. Thank you very much. And I really am wishing you all the best as well. And thanks, Olga. Hey, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Sustainable Minds wherever you get your podcasts. And please do live a review if you like what we're doing. It helps others discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. If you want to find out more about how we can help you evolve your corporate brand, culture, and ESG, head to bakerbrand.com. See you on the next episode of Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG.